Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna. I'm Senior Fellow here at The Fund and I'm going to be your host for this episode. Like many people at the moment, we at the King's Fund are working from home, which means we're recording this episode remotely. So please excuse any background noises you might hear. Today, I'm so pleased to be joined for this episode by the Mayor of Bristol, Marvin Rees. Marvin, you've had a really exciting career journey, including roles with the International Development Agency Tier Fund, and you spent time in the US in Washington, DC, working for a social justice organisation, I think, and you've also previously worked with the NHS and as a broadcast journalist for the BBC. So I'm hoping to ask you a bit about your career to date later in the episode. But first, just a massive welcome from us to you, Marvin, because we're so delighted to have you with us today. Well, thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. So a nice, easy question for you to start with. I gather you were born and bred in Bristol. What is your favourite thing about your home city? I like the fact that you can get to the edge of it and you can see the edge of the city from the middle of the city, which is quite special. So you don't feel totally entombed by concrete. That's nice. How long does it take? Can you walk there? Yeah, I'm in the, cent- I'm in the centre of the city right now, at yeah. City Hall. Uh, but on a bike, I could get to the North Somerset border probably in about 10 minutes with a fair wind. That's amazing. That's not like London at all. I was told not to say that it, the best thing is you can get to the edge of it. Because it, <laughs> cause <laughs> cause it, it sounds like you're trying to get out. Exactly. But there was, <laughs> there's always something very special about being able to just to see the edge of something. Lots of green space in Bristol as well, which is also very, very positive. So you were elected Mayor of Bristol back in 2016. But as I mentioned in the intro, obviously prior to becoming mayor, you'd already had a really impressive career spanning loads of different sectors here and abroad. What's the unifying thread or theme between the different roles that you've had? Well, it's interesting you call it impressive. I wouldn't call it that. I'd, I'd call it chaotic. <laughs> I don't think uh, so. <laughs> and and just the easiest thing to talk about is the unifying thread. The unifying mm-hmm. thread has been trying to find out a way of making the world better. So... Uh, when I worked for the aid agency, that speaks for itself. When I went to Washington and worked with Sojourners, again, that speaks for itself, an organisation that came out of back, the aftermath of the civil rights movement. It was involved in Call to Renewal, Jubilee 2000, the campaign for debt cancellation for the world's poorest countries in the late 90s. When I went to the BBC, I really wanted to find a way of giving a voice to the voiceless, people who were often not heard, voluntary sector, same with the health service. When I worked in the NHS in public health, I was working on the Race Equality Mental Health Programme. Again, that just is fine expression in politics. So actually, it, may, it, it kind of qualifies my relationship to elected office. It, I, didn't, I didn't grow up wanting to be in elected office. This, this is just the current expression of, of what I've wanted to do. It's, it's another means of trying to make the world uh, better. And the role of democratically elected mayor in Bristol is obviously relatively new. So I think it was first introduced in 2012. And you're the second person to hold the position. How does it fit in? How does your role fit in with the structures of government at a local level? And what does the role involve? Well, we've had to we've had to adjust the structures of local government. Right? And yeah. I ran in 2012 and lost. But, but the point I made back then is it would be a mistake to just take a mayoral model, stick it on the old model of local government and expect it to work. The mayoral model is very different. Under the leader, the political leader model, the group of the, the party with the highest numbers of councillors go into a room and decide amongst themselves who the political leader is going to be. So it's got nothing really to do with the city. So you could have 33 people go into a room 
17 of them say who they want and that person becomes the leader of the city, irrespective of what the city thinks. The mayoral model is directly elected um, and directly accountable. So that changes, that changes the nature of the relationship between the mayor and the city. It also changes the nature of the relationship between the mayor and the local authority and the councillors. Uh, it's a whole different dynamic and we have to work out what those dynamics are and that's what we've been um, trying to do. So my model of political leadership is much more looking outward to the city than it is getting involved in the machinations of local authority. My point has been I am more accountable because I'm more visible. If stuff doesn't happen, you know it's me. That's accountability. The people know it's me. When you ask the question, why didn't get houses, why didn't houses get built in 2007? No one knows, right? Because it's just some anonymous committee. So invisibility is the best form of undermining <laughs> accountability. Um, so yeah. we've been trying to really transform. So it sounds like you've shaken things up quite a bit. Has that been difficult to manage? I think there are a number of things that have been difficult for people to take on. One is I am, everyone, everyone claims to be an outsider now in politics. It's like a mantra, isn't it? <laughs> you talk to any politician, they grew up on a council estate, you know, yeah. so it's everyone. Or their mum did or their grandma yeah, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for real. So I, I think there were a number of adjustments to be made. No matter which way you cut it up, even though everyone claims to be radical, this is a really turgid organisation, mm. um, historically, politically. Uh, had nothing to do with me growing up as a kid and certainly didn't have much to do with me even when I was running the uh, Race Equality Mental Health Programme. So I am coming in as an outsider and people have struggled with that. Whether race and class is an issue, that's a conversation for another time. But, you know, I'm supposed to be the first directly elected mayor of African heritage of any major European city. That's brought change too. And what we've also done is, even though I say I look more out to the city, we set something up called the City Office which recognises, which may come up in later questions, that what people receive from Bristol is not the result of decisions made by any single organisation. The local authority is one among many players determining life outcomes for people in the city. The health service is a massive shaper of that. And I don't have control over the health service, the police, the criminal justice system, uh, many of our big businesses. So what I've done is I've put much more energy into, into working with our city partners, play shapers, bringing us together under a shared vision that we've all written. It's called the One City Plan and working proactively with our partners to make stuff happen. And the opportunity of the mayor is to become a, a place leader, uh, not just a local authority leader. When you were describing your role as leader and how you've been shaking things up, it, it made it sound like it's quite a lonely place to be sometimes. Is that right? It can be, but, but that's, to be honest, that's like anyone, I think, in leadership. You, you can feel quite alone. But the secret of that must be having a very strong group of trusted friends around you. Mm -hmm. Any West Wing fans out there, there's a, there's a fantastic moment. I'm where, a massive fan, yeah. Oh, well, there you go. You might remember this one. Bartlett is leaving the Oval Office uh, to go off to his State of the Union address. And I think he says to the designated survivor, this young representative, he says, have you got a best friend? He says, yeah. He said, is he smarter than you? He said, yeah. He said, do you trust him with your life? He said, yeah. He said, there's your chief of staff. And I suppose the secret of leadership is to find people who are smarter than you, who you trust, and, and bring them around you. And in fact, that is actually a piece about leadership for me, is I'm around all these people who are smarter than me, who have great, especially, you know, certainly in their specialist areas. Uh, but I guess one of the qualities of good leaders, and I'm not claiming to be, let's say, good leaders, but certainly a quality I aspire to is being comfortable, being in a room in which everyone is smarter than me, and not needing anyone to to be less than they can be to make me feel comfortable. And, uh, you know, there are leaders who do require people to be less, and, and I hope I'm not one of them. 
That's positive. And, and you want smart people around you, but smart people that are trusted, but challenge. Yeah. And, but then again, the challenge comes from the right place. You know that what we are doing is looking for truth and looking for the best. What we're not going to do is build a kingdom. Again, that's where trust becomes so important. I will share, actually, because I got it on my wall. When, we, when I was first elected, I took the cabinet. It was a cross-party cabinet at the time. It's not anymore. We, we said, what, what are the values that we think should shape the way we interact with each other? We said bold, caring, enabling, trustworthy. And I put trustworthy rather than trust. Because trustworthy is a quality you develop in yourself for other people. I'm not just going to go and trust you. That would be naive, right? And the other one was gracious. I just want people to be gracious towards each other. You know, um, if you if you fail, I'm not just going to rip you apart. <laughs> or if and there's a, there's a lot there's a lot within within my city historically of people giving it to everyone else. You know, mm-hmm. everyone wants to give blame to someone else for for, for the reason things happen. When the world is much more complicated than that. But graciousness is something that's really kind of caught a hold amongst amongst some of the conversation we have in the city. So at the King's Fund, we're really interested in what we call collective, inclusive and compassionate leadership. And by that, we mean kind of leadership that shifts away from traditional command and control structures and what's known as heroic leadership style to styles that distribute leadership to wherever capability and motivation sit and that focus on trying to reach a shared understanding with people. And it actually sounds like you've already touched on some of those concepts using different language in how you've described what you've been doing at at the city level. But do you recognise that type of leadership in your own practice? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to overclaim, but it's what we would want to do. Um, I'd say a couple of things in response. One is my chief constable here is not mine, but the chief constable, Andy Marsh. He said something over dinner once that I wrote down. He said, world-class public sector leadership is no longer about what you control. It's about what you influence. I don't have control over the health service, the universities, but because we have come together to write a shared vision, we influence each other. I also learned a lesson, if I dare pull it in, when I was a teenager I was going to be a Royal Marine officer there's this Royal Marines officer and he was the most the most he led the most decorated troop in the Falklands so how long ago it was because it was the 1980s I was a teenager we came back for a debrief at the end of the day running around the Lake District and you know we'd all been trying to prove how fit we were you know running up the side of hills till snot drips down about a foot <laughs> that we're too grabby sounds very glamorous yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the but no one stops running no one stops moving because everyone wants to prove how you know macho they are um, and he said to us, you guys, you think that being the best Royal Marine officer is all about carrying 100 pound packs up mountains. He said, there's an element of that that's true. But the best Royal Marines officer will find the best shot and give them the rifle, the best map reader and give them the map, the fittest guy and give them the heaviest Bergen. And then they will get by on four hours sleep so their guys can have six hours sleep. And I never, obviously, I've never forgot that, right? You find the people who are equipped to do the job and then you sacrifice your well-being to, to make sure that they can flourish. That servant leadership was at the heart of that, and that's always stayed with me. And it's something I, I tried to practice, probably don't, I don't get it perfect, but you, you know, you try. Obviously you work as mayor for everyone in the city, so there's a huge task around balancing the needs and requirements of all the different stakeholders you work with. Is that kind of ability to find compromise essential to successfully or effectively leading in your role? See, compromise is a loaded word here, right? It's a challenging word because, um, first of all, I'd say this is a democracy. And in a democracy, when you're doing a deal, no one walks away from the table with everything they want. If you don't compromise, you get nothing. You'll be one of them, what I call the touchline profits, 
you know, they never have to risk getting muddy. They never have to risk anything because they're not on the game. But they're they're fantastic at telling everyone else how they should run around. That that word compromise is a is a, is a reality of life. But the reason it's problematic because people um, also flip it with the word sellout. So you got elected and now you're selling out on your principles, and and in some sense they want you to go down a blaze of glory. And that's why I find it you know a bit of a problem. A loaded word. Yeah. Yeah. But take Barack Obama on health reform. So suppose Barack Obama goes to a young African-American kid and say, listen, I'm sorry I didn't get any health changes that meant that you got your liver operation and you're going to die. Uh, but I just want you to know that ideologically I'm pure. Um, I didn't compromise. I didn't cut any deals. And I kept true to my principles. And I would say I would not do a deal unless you went 100% where I am. It's pathetic. It's selfish. It's self-indulgent. Well, it's not. it's not really understanding the realities of leading and being accountable is it because if you're just principled and ideological then you're not able to secure improvements for people so I wanted to talk to you um you brought it up before about the kind of powers you do have and the powers you don't have we're very interested at the King's Fund in the concept of place-based care so Bristol obviously is a city with a strong identity of its own. But in the health system, it's also part of this wider footprint, the Bristol, North Somerset and South Gloucester Sustainability and Transformation Partnership. So in that sense, it's part of a much larger area. And I just wondered how that relationship between the STP and your city works in practice. How do you work out what decisions are getting made at each level? So primarily, obviously, it's through the interaction between health and adult social care. And then obviously through the health and well-being board, where we bring people together. Um, and that health and well-being board is responsible for coming up with the health strand in our one city plan. So our one city plan has six strands to it. Health and well-being, education and skills, homes, communities, transport, connectivity, um, economy and environment. Um, it, we're due to sub one in soon to have one for children and young people instead of education and skills. Um, but that, that's it. So they, they, the idea is that, that that health voice speaks into into the One City Plan. Can I just gently challenge though, and I'm, I love the opportunity to do this, uh, just, just what you described there, that the health system is not the health of the NHS. No, So absolutely. I think, and I, I know this is the King's Fund um, kind of thing, so I did a lot of thinking, and certainly when I was in the health service uh, myself, and then when I was actually trying to get involved with the Leadership Academy some years ago, that I saw the NHS going on this kind of journey, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. Mm. One is it started talking about leadership at all, right? So it discovered that there is such a thing called leadership. You don't just become a manager and boss people around, right? So, yep. and then you start to get onto this conversation around, okay, well, what is a good leader, right? Mm-hmm. A good leader of your team. Then it started to talk about systems leadership. And I did a program a few years ago called Intercept, which is supposed to be about systems leadership. Um, interestingly, we spent a day, I won't say where, but it was with a CCG, chief exec. We were supposed to be in total about systems leadership. And she talked about A&E. But as she left, when she left and we were doing our debrief, I said, what we're talking about here is not health systems leadership. We're talking about health service systems leadership because you're just talking about the NHS. The health system is life, right? The health system is housing, education, criminal justice system, transport connectivity, quality food, and how those things all, all work together to create better well-being and improved health resilience. If we only operate on the NHS bandwidth, we're talking about fractures and heart surgery yeah. and when people are already sick. 
But to be fair to, and I totally take your challenge, to, but to be fair to the NHS, sustainability and transformation partnerships and their success of the kind of integrated care systems, they are meant to be bringing in those other elements and thinking much more in a kind of broader health sense uh, rather than this kind of NHS-centric, NHS-focused sense. Do you think that's still not happening? No, we've we've got people in the city, in Bristol, who are generally thinking about it. Robert Woolley, Chief Exec of University Hospital Bristol, the, the chair as well, Jeff Farrar, Andrea Young at North Bristol Trust. They have been people that have actually stepped up as we've opened the door to come in and start talking to us about, okay, how can they begin to push upstream? So if we're going to reduce the demand or the pressure on NHS in 10, 15 years, we've got to give people good quality homes today, right? We've got to give, give children access to good quality nutrition. We're having the same conversation with Peter Blair, who's our city recorder, you know, the top judge. Those organisations need to begin pushing upstream to say how we're going to reduce the, uh, the, the you know, the demand on their, their future services. Um, so there, there has been that vision. But I, I think the NHS has a huge role to play as a play shaper because it has a great deal of moral authority to be able to say, we want that housing development to come through. Mm-hmm. You know, we want we want the investment in mental health um, in our schools. We want you to make sure that children and young people have access to good quality work experience because by helping them to escape poverty... And they can create those opportunities and also they employ so many people in the area. Exactly. Their role is not just about the health services they provide, it's estate managers, uh, employers and then agenda setters for the rest of the city. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about the other footprint that you're part of, the West of England Combined Authority. And I know that as part of that deal that I think was done in 2016, I think just before you took power as mayor, you managed to secure additional powers over transport planning, skills and employment. Have those additional powers helped you to, as mayor, create a healthier place in Bristol? Um, Somewhat. Uh, We're certainly able to put some agenda items down there. But we're, to be perfectly honest, the... The combined authority model is, is an important one because it begins to recognise the way the political economy actually works. It works on a broader footprint than, than just our local authority boundaries. The challenge is that whatever central governments say about devolution, it doesn't mean anything unless you begin to put some money in it and to really invest. And, and what we need as places to be able to, to be able to shape our future is predictable finance. I keep, I, this is the point I make time and time again. We don't even know as a local authority what our financial settlement is going to be next year. That undermines our ability to plan. And our ability to plan, uh, replanning and a rebuilding of our city, so it decarbonise, more healthy and all the rest of it, that depends on a 10, 15 year, 20 year journey we need to go on. But we don't have the kind of financial vehicles or relationship with central government that allow us to do that. And so I was going to ask you, why didn't you go for the devolved powers in relation to health like Greater Manchester did? Because it sounds like you you somewhat think you don't have the powers, but also I'm imagining that, that, that possibly that's because you feel you won't have the money that needs to go alongside that. Yeah, remember too, Manchester had a couple of decades of experience of working together anyway. So there's a, there's a different kind of relationship, I think. And again, I, I dare to be challenged, but the, the relationship... Uh, between Manchester and his movement to a combined authority is different to where we were. Manchester's collection of local authority relationships had grown over a couple of decades. We didn't have that. So, so you're com- saying you're not ready for them? You're not ready for devolved powers over health? Well, I think, I mean, I'd be always wary about saying we're not ready, but I'm saying it, it comes as a challenge. If you've got a track record of working together across boundaries as local authorities in a joined up way, 
there's something that's much more organic about that, what you're growing into. To be honest, the, the way the combined authority was presented, um, and I say this uh, quite a bit, is was back to front. So basically what happened was, after the first mayoral experiment didn't quite take off, because Bristol was the only city in 2012 that said, yes, we want a mayor. Government, I guess we're looking for a new machine. Government basically said to us, here's a model of governance. Here's a structure, a bureaucratic structure. We would like you to take it on. If you take it on, we will release money and decision-making powers to you. If you don't, you won't get those money and powers. And by the way, you might not even get a place at the table. What they should have said was, to flourish, this country needs local authorities to begin behaving in a certain way. Right? We need you to start planning over the long term and working cooperatively across boundaries. Go away and work out how to do it. Show us the governance structure you're putting in place to support those behaviours. And then we'll come in and negotiate with you about how much we invest in those. Simply adopting a new bureaucratic structure does not mean you get the behaviours and the values you need. So I think it was fundamentally back to front. Now we're trying to retrofit behaviours and values into a, a structure. Now that can work, but it can also be uh, problematic. You mentioned Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester and his kind of, you know, the pushback to government that he's been making over the past couple of weeks around COVID-19. And I just wonder, so I don't think his pushback was technically about him having devolved health powers, but I assume they gave him more of a platform in a kind of soft power sort of way. Do you think having those powers in your region would make a difference to your ability to respond or deal with COVID-19? It could do. But remember, much of our response to COVID-19 has been about people's awareness of the principles of transmission and working with our partners to manage our population, to build trust. So that in and of itself is not necessarily the NHS. It's, it's about life, isn't it? And how we've got food out to people. So we've got a whole city network to get food out to people, right? That's enabled people to stay in their homes and isolate. That's not an NHS system, that's a city system. I have actually been a little bit, uh, and again, I'm, I'm here to be challenged, but I, from the beginning, I just thought we, we need to, this pandemic is not just about the National Health Service, and so much of it has been defined in terms of ICU beds. This is a social crisis. I, I read a paper that was in a Lancet, and my DPH uh, said to me, uh, written by a guy called Horton, I think, they said, this is not a pandemic, this is a syndemic. Yeah. I've never heard of the term before. Me neither, actually, but it's a really good term, isn't it? It absolutely fits. I used it in my state, the city, last week, because it absolutely fits with what we are talking about, what we've been talking about in Bristol, which I think is a public health-informed approach to health leadership within Bristol. You have to look at pre-existing conditions overlaid on top of inequalities to understand what's going on. If, if we think that the only threat to health is the virus, and we don't take account of all those other drivers of health, it's a real problem. So unemployment is a threat to health, as you'll uh, be aware, for example. And, and so we need, we need that conversation to be expanded. I've said this to government, and I've said it to my, our shadow um, health team as well in the Labour Party, that we need to mature the national conversation on health beyond the National Health Service to actually public health. My, my concern is that the protections around public health that used to exist when it was in the NHS have now disappeared because it's within local government. And local governments you know, is, is an easy target. And, and the quality of relationship between national government and local government is not good. Uh, yeah. And that's a real problem. So as you've spoken about, we've seen how the health impact of the virus and then the social effects of lockdown have affected different communities in different ways. What, what's the experience been in Bristol? Well, our numbers in Bristol have been comparatively good. Uh, we've had a good level of compliance in Bristol. Um, we won't claim to have come across any secret formula for, for how we've had relatively no numbers um, because to be perfectly frank we know there's a little bit of compliance and behavior that we've 
Um, but the other thing is we don't know. We've probably just been quite lucky. And you don't know what's yet to come, right? No, we don't know. And we, our numbers are going up now, so um, it's a real um, uh, challenge for us. So, you know, that's, that's essentially been our experience. But we have, we noticed very early doors. We anticipated inequalities from the virus itself landing on certain communities. We, we saw that coming. Uh, but we also saw the consequences of lockdown. We identified the consequences of lockdown as a health threat right from the start as well. So we set up our feeding program, for example. We'd already had a big citywide program to, to tackle child hunger. That was reoriented towards just getting food out to people. We started work on our economic recovery plan, which has been published last week. We started it before, within the first week of the lockdown so that we could say to the city, uh, you may be going through economic dire situations, but we are doing our best to plan our way out of it. Survival, recovery and flourishing economy so you'll have jobs at the other end. So we were very proactive around those wider consequences um, as well. And so I'm really interested in that idea and the potential of the relationship that cities have with each other. So how are you, not on, not just on COVID, but, but more broadly on your ambitions, how are you working with other mayors in the UK and then across the world with other cities? So we are part of a number of prominent city networks. Uh, we're part of core cities in the UK, the 10 biggest cities outside of London. I'm on the executive committee of the Global Parliament of Mayors. I'm on the I'm on the board of the Mayors Migration Council, which is there to shape the Global Compact on Migration. That's with Mayor Garcetti, and Mayor of Los Angeles, Mayor Plant from Montreal, Yvonne Akisoya, Mayor of Freetown. Um, I know obviously about ten of us on that. Um, I attend C40 events, which are the Mayors, a global network of um, cities funded by Bloomberg. Those are the big cities like London, New York, on climate change, Los Angeles, and so forth. Um, so we're very active on the international uh, scene. There's a few things that um, really drive that. Um, I didn't come in with that big agenda, but it's really driven. City leaders need the power not only to control and shape what goes on inside their boundaries, but the national and the international context in which they work, because those international forces shape lives in cities. So migration lands on Bristol streets. Right? It's mad that the UN would go through three years of negotiating a global compact on migration and never talk to city leaders talk about cities, but never talk to city leaders about how it actually works. If you want to talk about the action we take on climate change, if you decarbonise city systems around housing, waste, energy, transport, you have a massive impact on, on climate. Don't just talk about us, come and talk to us about the impediments to decarbonising our, our, our city systems. So cities are really becoming quite assertive in, um, in that space. It is the big movement, it's not one that necessarily the, the um, the world of journalism has caught up with, uh, although it's starting to listen to a lot more. Um, so, so it's not necessarily something that gets the coverage that that it should have uh, right now, uh, but it's certainly going on. And are there particular cities when it comes to health, health in its broadest sense, not NHS-centric health, that you look to aspiring to or ideas that you particularly take from particular cities? Yeah, so we, we've launched Bristol Thrive, and that had been New York Thrive. Uh, and New York had done an amazing piece of work actually looking at what produces mental health is the city, not just our health services. So how do we build resilience in the first instance from, from food to housing to community connectivity to employment opportunity? So, uh, yeah, we've, we certainly took that model and developed it uh, for ourselves here. I think there's a, London, uh, there's a London Thrive as well that we've managed to draw on as well. 
And I think final question for you. This question is just about what's next for Marvin Rees. So are you thinking potentially at some point that you'll go for a seat in Westminster or is it Bristol all the way? Again, I'll, I'll search for those opportunities where I can try and make change and try and make the world better with my limited self. I'm, I, I'm, I need to be not false humility. That's a very political answer. <laughs> well, it's, but, oh, that's not fair. You talk to any of your health service managers. <laughs> no, no, I'm a fallen human being in a broken political system with an imperfect political party. You know, you just do your best. But no, I, it's not. It's not necessarily politics. It's not necessarily Bristol. It's going to be wherever I can go. Um, you know, I'm really interested in journalism. Um, mm-hmm. It was a career I pursued that didn't work out. And I, I, I love the power of storytelling. And, and putting people in touch with issues. Uh, a couple of people are interested in trying to get me to do a book, and um, and I and I'm really, really a big believer in the, in this global city networks I'm a part of as well, and, and see them as a source of dynamism, innovation, and global leadership that we're not getting from national governments at the moment. Um, so there, I'm sure there's hopefully there'll be opportunities to pursue avenues in those areas. That sounds exciting. Well, thank you so much, Marvin. It's been great to spend time with you today. Thanks for the time. Appreciate you. So that's it from us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps others to find us and also helps us to improve the show. So I'd really encourage you if you can, please leave us a review. And you can also get in touch with us via Twitter, either at the King's Fund account or my account at Helena Macarena. Thanks as always to you for listening, but also to our podcast team for this episode, producer Sarah Murphy, researcher Jonathan Holmes, and also our colleague Simon Newitt for his advice and assistance. We hope you can join us next time.